in Genesis chapter 5. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5, we're going to look at 5 and 6 this evening. Look at God's grace and judgment. Genesis chapter 5. Going through the Bible on Wednesday nights, really excited about it. So much good stuff for us in the book of Genesis. So let's pray together. Father, we want to take a moment to wait upon you, to recognize your presence with us. We thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And oftentimes we feel that we have more than we can handle, but we know that in you we can do all things. So we choose to rejoice tonight, And as we look at these two chapters in Scripture, we ask that you would speak to our hearts and give us a greater vision of your character, that we could be more like Enoch, that more like Noah. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with early history. And then from chapter 12 to chapter 50 is the early history of the nation of Israel, how the nation of Israel uh, began. In these first 11 chapters, it's summed up in four events. So if you remember this about the first 11 chapters, the first event is creation. And then the second event is fall, the fall when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And then the third is the flood that we're going to begin to study tonight. And the fourth is the Tower of Babel. So those four major events really sum up these 11 chapters. In chapter 5, it begins with a genealogy. Just what you love to study on a cold Wednesday night, right? Like, man, I'm so stoked to study uh, genealogy. And what it's going to do is take us from Seth all the way to Noah and bridge the gap between Seth to Noah. Chapter four was the genealogy of Cain who killed his brother Abel and that genealogy just drops off into the pages of history, into the sunset. But the genealogy of Seth will eventually lead to uh, Jesus Christ. So let's begin in verse one of chapter five. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So it begins with this glimmery, shiny hope of God's intention of creation. When God created man, what did he create us in? He created us in the likeness of God, in the image of God. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 6, we're going to see that mankind has fallen far from that to the point where God pours out his judgment with the flood. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. So not only was, were we created in God's likeness, but we were created with God's blessing. God blesses mankind. And verse 3, And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years And he had sons and daughters, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Can you imagine living 930 years? It's like, oh, you celebrate your 100th birthday, what do you do, get your driver's permit? It's like, like, oh, you're a teenager, you're 100 years old, you're just, just getting started in this life. I lose track of birthdays now, think about 900 birthdays. Would you just stop celebrating? 
probably. So he lives to be 930 years old. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. So he's a young dad at 105 years old. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. So we start to see population just begin to explode as they're living for all of these years and having children. Of course, they would have a lot of children in in this course of time. In verse 9, Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh begot, Enosh lived 815 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And this is a key phrase as we're going through this genealogy. And he died, and and he died, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. So 910 years old, and he dies. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. As I was reading over this this afternoon, I was thinking, man, Mahalalel is sure a mouthful for a name. I'm sure sometimes when people were trying to call him for dinner, they're like, Mahalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalalal
For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So it was through faith that he was able to go home to heaven without dying. God apparently came to him and said, Enoch, today's your day to come home with me. And Enoch said, let's do it. Enoch didn't respond and say, well, I've got to die first to be able to go and be in your presence. And he pleased the Lord. There's a small verse in Jude 14 and 15. Jude is such a small book that it's only one chapter. And in these verses 14 and 15, Enoch also gives a message. It says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, so we know it's the same Enoch, prophesied about these men saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and for all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch was speaking of God's judgment. He was close enough with the Lord where he knew God's heart, and he was grieved over the wickedness that was taking place, and he's saying God's coming in judgment, And that's exactly what took place during Noah's lifetime with the flood that we'll see in just a few moments. There's a small book, if you get a chance to read it, if you haven't read it or it's been a while since you've read it, it's called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence had the menial, mundane task of doing dishes every day. That's what most of his day was filled with, was simply doing dishes. And instead of getting discouraged about his work, he decided that he would simply try to practice the presence of God. God is with him right there in that moment and to talk with the Lord and fellowship with the Lord and walk with him in such closeness. And it's a really a great book and a great testimony of how we can practice the presence of God. There's sometimes where we become very aware of God's presence. Sometimes in worship, as we're singing together with believers, we're like, man, the Lord is here and he's with me. But then there's other times where we're not aware of his presence, even though he's with us, right? And it's not based on our emotions. It's not based on what we're experiencing, but the reality of I know that God is with me. And to practice God's presence in that moment, to listen to him, to fellowship with him and talk with him. Maybe you find yourself in a valley, and Jesus says that he'll walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe the redeeming value of the valley is the fact that Jesus is with us, that we get to walk with him, that he's walking with us. So God takes special note of Enoch, that he walked with the Lord, and then the Lord takes him home without dying. Also, I think that this points to and foreshadows the rapture of the church that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. We don't know when it's going to take place, but there will be a generation of believers that go home to be with the Lord in the twinkling of an eye, and they won't die. They won't pass away. And how awesome would that be, right? To simply all of a sudden be in God's presence, to not have to go through death, to not have your loved ones go through death, and to be in God's presence. So Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. In verse 25, Methuselah lived 100 and 87 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. He takes first prize as the oldest who's ever lived, almost makes it to a thousand years old. 
Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. This is interesting to me. So Lamech has his son, Noah, and he senses that God is doing something in Noah's life. And he says, Noah's going to bring comfort concerning the work and the toil of our hands because we're living under this curse. Now, from our perspective, reading the Bible tonight, now so many years later, isn't Noah a comfort? Why? Because if God wouldn't have grace on Noah, we wouldn't be here. God would have wiped out everybody. So Noah really was a comfort, but not in the way that Lamech was probably anticipating. And that's oftentimes God's work in our lives. God is doing a work. He is providing comfort. Lamech was right in what he was sensing that God was going to do in Noah's life. It just looked completely different than his expectations. And isn't that the case most times? God's work is completely different than our expectations, but so much better. So we go on and, and we read, after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 500 and 95 years, and he had sons and daughters. So the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. He got all sevens. Kind of won the lottery there. Seven, 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 seven. The number of completion. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He kind of got a late start. 500 years old, and has his boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We go into chapter 6. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. So there's this explosion of population that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now at first reading, this seems pretty normal that sons of God would have relationships with the daughters of men But then as we go on and we read the next few verses, this is far from normal. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So because of the wickedness that God is seeing, the sons of men having relationships with the daughters of men, God says no longer is there going to be these long lives. There's not going to be 900 years and 800 years. The lifespan's going to be shortened to 120 years. We often wonder, well, why at one point did people live so long, and then all of a sudden the lifespan got so much shorter? And yes, I think the atmosphere and the ozone changed after the flood, and that shortened lifespans. But the primary reason that we can know biblically is God saw all of the wickedness and he said, I don't want people to live that long. And we say yes and amen, right? And so God in his mercy and in his grace, he shortens it to 120 years. And God here begins to express his heart and his emotion saying, I'm not always going to strive with man. God's heart is grieved over the wickedness that is uh, taking place. In verse 4, these were the giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, 
Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So as the sons of God have sexual relations with the daughters of men, you get these men of renown. You get these giants that develop. Something abnormal takes place uh, from their relationship. So this section of scripture, guys, is the most debated in all of the book of Genesis. Like there's so many different theories on exactly what's going on here and what does uh, this mean. So let's talk through a few of them. The first is that the sons of God speak of the descendants of Seth, and the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain, uh, and they had relationship uh, together. But if that is the case, uh, then why is God so grieved, and how do you explain the giants? How do you explain uh, these men of renown that came from the, the relationship. So then another idea is that the sons of God are fallen angels and that fallen angels are having sexual relationships with the daughters of men. The problem with that is in Matthew 22, verse 30, it says this about angels. It says, the angels aren't married nor do they are given in marriage. The idea of angels is they're sexless creatures. They're not created in the same anatomy that we are. So something is taking place. So then that brings us to a third possibility that these are fallen angels and they're possessing men's bodies and the men are then demon-possessed and they're having then sexual relations that are resulting in the giants. Now, I land on the third. You can choose your own, and if you don't like those three, you can find a lot more other ideas that are, that are out there. But 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, write this down. There's a few places that this is referenced to in the New Testament. 1 Peter 3, verse 19 and 20, it says, By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient, when once divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which, that is, eight souls were saved through the water. So Peter says that Jesus went and preached to these demons that had been disobedient during the days of Noah and are now in this holding tank of judgment. And it's not a preaching for the opportunity of conversion, but it's preaching to let them know of their judgment. So something is taking place here because 1 Peter 3 acknowledges it. And then 2 Peter 2 also connects demonic activity to the time of the flood. And then Jude 6 is another reference. So 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, 2 Peter 2, uh, 2, or 2 Peter 2, 4, and then Jude 6. But ultimately, we don't know for sure what's taking place. We have the text before us. The sons of God are having relationship with the daughters of men, and it moves God's heart towards judgment. But we can say this, that there's a sexual perversion of God's design. So here's God's design, and now there's become a sexual uh, perversion of it. And the enemy continues to attack in that way, doesn't he? Because we're created in God's image, male and female. It's clear as mud? All right. 
I took it easy on you guys too. I mean, we could have really went out there for a while, but I don't know that it would have been beneficial. So verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. So this is a far cry from when God looks at creation, when Adam is created and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good sees Adam who's dwelling alone. It's not good for Adam to dwell alone, creates Eve. It is good. How quickly that we've fallen from that place. If you do the math from Seth to Noah, Noah was 14 years old when Seth passed away. And so you see fairly quickly some generations go by and how far the hearts of men have gotten away from the Lord to where the thoughts of men is on evil continually. It's all that men and women are thinking about is evil. So God's response to this in verse six, and the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. Now God being sorry doesn't mean that it took God by surprise. God wasn't surprised at the evil of man, the sexual perversion that is taking place the evil that's continuing in their hearts and their minds, but it does move God, and he's grieved. And he's grieved over the choice that man has made. God gives us opportunity to love God, and with that is also the opportunity to disobey God and to love darkness and love what is evil. One of the things I think oftentimes that's missing in our understanding of God, our theology of God, our view of God, is we view God with no emotions, Because oftentimes with our emotions, it takes us to where we're out of control and we do sinful things. But not all emotion is bad. And God having complete self-control has emotion and it doesn't lead him to be out of control or to sinful activity. So God's heart is broken here. He's grieved. Sin sin moves him to that place where he's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry that I created man because this is the sinful state that man is in. Doesn't surprise him. He knew they would get there, but it hurts his heart and it moves his heart. I know that this is simplistic, but sometimes when you read the scriptures and you look at your own experience, my own experience, and you look at the experience of humanity, you often wonder what God sees. You're like, God, how, how are we worth it to you? <laughs> We're already at Genesis 6 and things are so messed up and you knew that it would take your son. You knew that that was needed is for us to have a savior. You knew that I would need a savior. You knew that humanity would be so so sinful but yet you you love us and it shows us the magnitude of God's love. In verse 9, so the Lord said, I will destroy man who I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. We see decreation. God created man. He created female. He created beasts. He created all the creeping things, but now in his judgment, he has to destroy these things. Key verse, verse eight, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're so thankful for verse eight because we wouldn't be here without verse eight. So great is the sin, sexual perversion, demonic activity, hearts are evil, hearts are violent. God could have easily said, that's it. I'm just gonna wipe everybody out. 
I'm going to send this flood. Everybody's going to die. And the Bible's wrapped up in a few short chapters. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. So there's great sin, but there's greater grace still. There's a poem that reads, Sin and despair, like sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. This black backdrop of sin, this black backdrop of rebellion, and a society that's completely wicked, and yet you see God's saving grace and God choosing to save Noah and his family. Sounds a lot like our lives. We have this black backdrop of our sin. We're lost, despair, but yet God in his grace gives us his son. In verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah is living in a time of so much wickedness, so much violence, so much sexual perversion, but yet he chooses to be just. To be just is integrity. He, he chooses to walk the straight and narrow. He's perfect not in the sense that he never sinned, but perfect speaks of blameless, holy, and complete. He had set himself apart to walk with the Lord. God's grace was upon his life as he chose the Lord in humility and faith. God equipped him to be able to walk differently. Church, we need to hear this message because I think in a lot of ways we look at our culture and we see sexual perversion. There's demonic activity. There's violence. And in some ways we can just kind of go, it's all lost. Like there's no hope of a godly life. There's no hope of being set apart. But when we see someone like Noah, and he didn't compromise, he didn't give in to culture, and he chose to walk with the Lord, it really stands out. And we can choose to walk with the Lord, and we can encourage others to walk with the Lord. And when it's dark, there's God's always working that bright light of his redemption through a person that will follow him. God always raises up a Noah. He always raises up a remnant, individuals that say, I'm going to fully surrender myself to the Lord. You don't have to be a genius to look at American culture and see that it's headed somewhere that the gray area is being eliminated in our culture. You're going to have to make a decision. I'm going to have to make a decision. Are we for Christ or against Christ? And if culture says that it's not popular to be for Christ, or there's consequences that come our way for being a follower of Christ, or it doesn't fit in to be a Christian, well, welcome to the days of Noah, right? Welcome to the opportunity that Noah had to say, I'm going to walk with the Lord. I'm not going down this path of violence. I'm not going down this path of, of sexual perversion. I, I'm not going to go down this, this path of of evil being on my thought continually. I'm going to think of, of upon the Lord. It makes the words of Paul stand out where we're called to be a living sacrifice and to not be conformed to this world. A Christian life has never been cultural. Amen? It doesn't fit into culture. It's counterculture. It's, it's God's culture. So we don't get squished into the world's mold, but to be set apart for the Lord. So just like Enoch, Noah stands out in that he walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
And the earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God sees the corruption and the violence. Sometimes I tend to think that violence is something new. Do you ever feel that way? Like, oh man, things are so violent. Like this has never, never happened before. But this is what led God to the point where he brought his judgment through the flood was violence. There's violence everywhere. There's this flood of violence that was, was taking place. And then we're living in a day again where there's a lot of violence. Jesus said it would be like in the days of Noah prior to his return, prior to Jesus uh, coming back. We're seeing the love of many grow cold and it growing more and more violent. In verse 12, so God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So God is seeing all this. This is emphasized in the language of Genesis 6. God saw, God sees, God looked. You know, God is not absent from seeing the wickedness and seeing the evil. We just finished up the book of Revelation, and it causes it to make sense why eventually God pours out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. Because he sees it. He sees it. He witnesses. It's accountable. It's, it's right before the Lord in, in all these things. When you think of God's judgment in the flood, does it stumble you? Because for a lot of people, it does. A lot of people read Genesis 6 and 7, where God pours out his flood, his judgment, on such a wicked people, and they go, how could God... I don't know if I want to serve a God that would wipe everybody out. And we put ourselves in the place where we start to judge God. Isn't that ironic? I don't know if it was right for God to do that. Well, wait a second. He created everybody. He created them. They all belong to him. And God in his love says, enough's enough. I can't allow this to continue. If this continues, the sexual perversion is just going to get worse and worse. The violence is going to get worse and worse. The evil is going to get worse and worse. And so God in his mercy, he brings judgment. And he says, okay, it's enough. We should be much more surprised that God gave grace to Noah than the fact that God brought judgment on such a violent world. We should be much more amazed that God has given grace to us in Jesus Christ than the fact that God brings judgment because judgment makes sense. When we deserve it, we, we've sinned, we've fallen short, we've rejected the Lord. And so that's an important one to wrestle with. Me personally, do I struggle with the flood? Do I struggle with the fact that God judged the world in this way? In verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth What news to hear, excuse me, verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it on the inside and the outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Do you guys measure anything in cubits? Right? So the New King James being translated into much more of a 
old school English than, than our English. We measure in, in inches. This is 18 inches. So this would be 450 feet long, 70 feet wide, and 45 feet high. This is a massive structure that God is calling Noah and his family to build. Try to put yourself in Noah's shoes. He gets news from God that God is going to destroy everyone with a flood. And then he says, I want you to build a boat. And he gives you the dimensions of the boat. We don't have the background of what Noah did for a living. Was he a farmer? Right? Was he an accountant? And then God's like, okay, you've got to build this boat. Maybe he was a carpenter. Maybe he built stuff for a living. And this tremendous faith that God would pour out the flood, that God would bring two of every kind to his boat. And he says, okay, we're going to be faithful to now build this boat to this dimension that God has given us. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubic from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. So it's going to be three decks. A window will be important as we'll see later on and also the door has a role to play as well. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So God's not apologetic about his judgment here. He says, I myself am, am doing this. I myself am bringing the judgment. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. I will establish my covenant with you. This is something to take note of, Bible students, is underline the word covenant. It's the first time the word covenant is used in all of Scripture. Covenant is a strong word. It's stronger than commitment. It has the idea of contract. It's God's contract with us. And God makes a covenant specifically with Noah. So I'm going to save you and your family. I'm going to have grace upon you and your family. In the New Testament, Jesus, when he was giving the Last Supper, instituting communion, he said this, Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. God has given us a contract in his own blood of the grace of, of Jesus Christ. This covenant with Noah points to the covenant that God would make through Jesus Christ. The ark points to Jesus. If you're in the ark, you're saved. If you're in the ark, you're in the covenant that God has provided. If you're in Christ, you're saved. The only thing that can save us from judgment is Christ, to be in him. And that's the joy of being robed in Christ's righteousness. If you trust Christ for salvation, believing that he died for your sins and rose again, you're in Christ. You have that position of forgiveness, the covenant that's provided through the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So he goes from massive carpenter to zookeeper, right? You're going to have two of every kind in this ark. You need male and female. These animals are going to go out and repopulate the earth after the flood is over. 
of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. We kind of get fascinated with all the big animals that would be on the ark, but then all the creeping things as well. There's some creeping things I'd rather not have in the ark, right? I wonder if Noah and his family ever thought, let's just squish these two right here. (laughs) This could be the end of tarantulas. We'll just never have to have tarantulas ever again, right? Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So God is going to bring these animals to the ark. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall eat it for yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. So a lot of food to prepare. And this is what's amazing, what we find in verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Faith resulted in obedience. God gave the grace. God gave the plan. God provided the salvation. Noah responded by faith, and it resulted in his actions. In Hebrews eleven seven, it says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of these things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of the household, by which he commanded the world, or by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. For us, we get to look back and go, yeah, God did send a flood. God did judge the world. For Noah, these things were still unseen. He's receiving them by faith. And he's choosing to build this ark by faith. And it resulted in this salvation of his family, of his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And I think this is the encouragement to us, is walk by faith. And by walking by faith, that could really impact your spouse. That can really impact your kids. You may be providing the ark, in a sense, for your kids to be able to walk in, that refuge by faith. Whether they choose it, that's up to them. But you saying, okay, this makes no sense to the world. Can you imagine how Noah was being mocked? What are you doing building that big boat? What do you mean a flood? That's never happened before. God spoke to you? We're going to check you into a loony bin, right? We've got loony bins for people that think they hear the voice of God. Maybe you have people that ridicule you. What are you doing tonight? Well, I'm going to church. Well, why do you go to church? You believe fairy tales? Oh, I'm so happy for you. You know, when people say it in that way, or it's extremely condescending, I'm glad it works for you, right? And your faith is being tested. Maybe you're on a path where the Lord has called you, and you know, this is where God wants me to be. And it's not comfortable, and it's not difficult but you're walking in obedience and you're walking by faith. Continue to trust it because that ark is needed. And Noah was able to trust the Lord and move in those things that he hadn't seen and to walk in faith and to walk in obedience. So we've got two examples tonight. Enoch and Noah are examples of men who walk with God in dark times. What does it mean to walk with God? It means to fellowship with God. It means to practice his presence but it also means to go in the direction that he's going, to follow him. We can't walk with God if we're not willing to go where he's going. And that's what the Gospels are all about. Jesus came into people's lives and invaded their lives and said, follow me, go where I'm going. 
Do what I'm doing. Let me steer the ship. And we fall short. We don't always get it right. But the cry of our hearts to say, God, I want to follow you. I'm tired of doing it my way. I don't want to go the way of the world. I, I know where sexual perversion gets me. I know where violence gets me. I don't want to get sucked in this toilet of evil, this downward spiral of evil. God, I'm choosing to, to walk with you. And we begin to commune with God and follow God and say, okay, you can be the Lord of my life. This is the direction that I want to go. And, and that's what it means to follow the Lord and to walk with God. And then see God's mercy and judgment. This is difficult. This is a difficult section of scripture of God bringing his, his judgment, but it's also his mercy. What if God doesn't bring his judgment? Things just continue to get more evil and more wicked. And the mercy and the salvation, it points to Christ. Christ is the one who provides salvation for us. Church, I hope that you're in the ark of Jesus Christ. I hope you're in the refuge of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Christ for salvation, may tonight be the night where you cry out to Jesus and say, I realize that I'm a sinner. You know, as I read this section of scripture, it causes me to be reminded of my own sin. It reminds me of how far I've fallen short in my need for Christ. And God loves you. He sent his son to die for you while we were still sinners. He wants to be in relationship with you. If you turn, repent from sin and believe and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus is the way. He's the only way to provide salvation. This whole idea that if you believe something, that's gonna be enough to get you to heaven, it's not what God says. It's not biblical. It's not what Jesus said. He's the only way for salvation. So as we head into communion, if you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, there'll be a ministry team and some pastors here in the front. We'd love to pray with you, answer questions that you may have, give you the opportunity to receive Christ. I want to be completely upfront. If you come up to receive Christ as your Savior, some things that are not going to happen. We're not going to ask for your money, all right? We're not going to ask you to join the church. We're not going to take you to a scary room and have you sit down on a couch, There's no backdoor tactics here. We're going to pray with you and give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior, welcome you to God's family, give you a Bible, give you a new believer's packet, congratulate you. This is about a decision with Jesus. This is about receiving him as your Savior. You're not joining a church. A church can't save you. The reason that we come to church is to not try to earn or deserve salvation, but because we are saved and we want to enjoy our Savior. So make sure that you're in Christ because he's the only one that will spare you from eternal judgment. And then if you are in Christ, man, walk with him. Walk with him. May we not get overwhelmed by the dark times that we live in, but may we be moved and inspired to say, I want to be like Enoch. I want to be like, by, like Noah. Both of these men are in Hebrews 11, which we describe as the heroes of faith, the great clouds of witnesses. God lists people's lives that lived by faith. And their testimony rises up off of the pages of scripture and says, it can be done. Enoch says to you tonight, it can be done. You can walk with God. Noah's life comes up off the pages of scripture and says to us, it can be done. We can walk with God. So let's stand together and let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you are the ultimate savior. You're the ultimate ark. You're the ultimate provision, the ultimate covenant. Your blood was shed. You died upon the cross. You rose again. Your body was broken so that we could be saved. We don't want to take that for granted. God, you know each heart, those that haven't surrendered to you, that haven't believed in you, and may you draw them with your love. And God, as we see that there are dark times, there is wickedness that is taking place, that we wouldn't be discouraged, but we would be encouraged to walk with you in a greater way. So would you fill us afresh with your spirit? We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.